Battle Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey friends, not a lot of time to talk because I've got a guy on the line who loves to talk and uh, deserves to be heard. Uh, Sean David Morton is with us. We're going to talk Area 51 and the Secret Space Program. First, very quickly, let me welcome two new affiliates to the program. WTSL AM 1400 out of Hanover, New Hampshire, and WTSV AM 1230 out of Claremont, New Hampshire. Good to have our first two stations out of the great Granite State. All right, Area 51. Uh, I had a friend that was driving along three, uh, Highway 375. Uh, just described it as this boring drive in the desert. I say, wait a minute, don't you know where you were? You were near Area 51. He said, what's Area 51? I said, oh, come on, you got to be kidding. I mean, people have been talking about Area 51 for years, wondering whether they're back engineering alien technology there, whether they've got alien uh, dead bodies on ice there. Uh, well, Sean David Morton is with us. He's here to tell us all about it. He's uh, an independent feature film writer, a director, an author, uh, the author of The Sands of Time, which is a, a true story uh, of a gentleman who spent 40 years inside the shadow government. Sean David Morton, how are you? I'm good. We're here in uh, rainy Southern California. Here you're getting snowed in up in Canada. We got a, a wallop, yes, but uh, nothing, nothing like uh, I remember when I was a kid. However, uh, I guess but I think we're getting soft in our old age. I'm thrilled to have you with me, but Thank I'm you. also uh, thrilled that you um, were able to go before our, uh, our TV cameras and do a couple of episodes of the uh, the conspiracy show television program. So uh, in September of this year, people are going to have a chance to see you on the show talking about the Bilderbergs and Area 51. One, both of which we'll touch on uh, here tonight, and, and also forbidden archaeology. The interesting thing, though, about Area 51 and the Bilderbergs, and who knows, uh, perhaps uh, to a certain extent, the hidden origins of mankind, these things all sort of nicely dovetail. And uh, when I think of Area 51, I think, and also the public, in our imagination, it's become this repository for Everything that we'd like to know but don't know, it's this repository of all the great secrets that we suspect are being hid from us by this elite group. But as I mentioned in the introduction, you're really uh, one of the key people who brought Area 51 into the public consciousness. Yes. How did did you uh, begin to investigate this secret base? Uh, I knew about it from uh, when I was a kid, actually, because I grew up with with astronauts. I grew up with, I have godfathers that have walked on the moon. My uh, uh, my dad was the public relations director for TRW, uh, which was then bought by Northrop uh, here in uh, in Southern California. And he also had a uh, he had a nightclub, actually, a, a private club just for the astronauts and people in the aerospace industry that was co-founded by him and uh, Wally Shira and Walter Cronkite, who was also a very good friend of the family, called the uh, called Jerry Morton's International Turtle Club. Which I thought for a while to kind of start up and make it more for you know, conspiracy people that we would all belong to the Turtle Club, which is the same thing that these guys belong to. But, uh, you know, the people that I grew up with that were just around the house all the time were people like uh, Gus Grissom, who was like a second dad to me, Ed White, uh, Chaffee, uh, Don Isley, Gordon Cooper, married my mom's best friend. So all these guys, uh, you know, who who everybody believed were on the cutting edge of the space program, all knew that there was something else that was going on, all knew that... Gus Grissom used to say, well, you know, we're just spam in a can and we're just monkeys they send up there. And uh, the military was spending something like 10 times more money than the secret space program that was happening at the same time. And, uh, you know, so when I was a kid, I'd heard rumblings of it. Just to give you the brief progression, I'd heard rumblings of and, and back then it was called the Docktown Strip, I believe, or just uh, or just Groom Lake. It, 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 it had the map classification of Area 51, and now the people on the inside actually just call it 5-1, and they usually spell it out as, you know, 5, you know, F-I-V-E dash, you know, 
O-N-E. So then it was, it was interesting because then I heard about it again. It cropped up in the, uh, in the mid eighties when I was good friends with a man by the name of Danny Casalero. And Danny Casalero wrote for a computer magazine here in, uh, in the South Bay of Southern California in Redondo Beach called Computer Times. And, uh, he and I did some work to uncover a, a top secret computer program that later became known as Promise, which, uh, was developed by the Inslaw Corporation by a man by the name of Bill Hamilton. Promise stands for Prosecutor's uh, Office Management Information Systems, and it was designed for the Justice Department to track, you know, criminals through the the, the gigantic Byzantine labyrinth-like morass that is the, the the federal criminal justice system. So, Promise was designed to actually crack into any computer system or structure, read them with kind of a fuzzy logic program, and uh, and and create bubbles of data that would then actually then rise up to the top so that they uh, an attorney general could put a case together. Well, specifically, Bill Hamilton did ne- never wanted this used as uh, in the in the public realm. He never wanted it used on the public or for military applications because with a program like that, you could track anything. You can track submarines. You can track people. You know, whatever. So for whatever reason, this what Danny called the octopus um, seemed to then be absorbed by Area 51 and seemed to be used as a because uh, then you get into the weird computer stuff that was going on at five one and uh, into a supercomputer computer that they called the beast which stands for battle engagement arena simulation and tracking and uh, uh you know prototypes for how you would then track troops in the field where you know which has some very very machiavellian and, and you know like all the bad parts of the end of the book of revelation kind of a biblical feel to it because what the systems become is you have you know what's known as the beast computer which can then be underground which uh, can then be operated by a general or a single individual that literally has these like suction cup transmitters that actually go on the frontal lobe of the brain so you can actually directly telepathically interact with the computer itself, which kind of look like horns, if you will. Uh-huh. And then that goes out to, uh, how you track, uh, how you track men in the field and equipment because they're then tagged with an RFID chip that they call a MARC, M-A-R-C-C, which is multiple automated readout computer chip. So you literally have the mark of the beast where a general can sit there and say, oh, we've got this many divisions and so many platoons and, you know, this type of gun and that sort of tank and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Danny investigating the Inslaw scandal because the Reagan administration stole the computer system. And the only reason they found out about it was that Inslaw was contacted by Canada. And the Canadians wanted a copy of the promised software in French for the Quebec police. And they were like, well, how'd you get this thing? And they realized that the Reagan administration had stole it. And then, you know, and then they did all kinds of bad things to Bill Hamilton. You know, they, like they always do, they accused him of being like a thief and a child molester and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. So all this leading up in Area 51, Danny Casalero then is murdered. He actually goes to a lead in Michigan and he's, you know, and, they, and the police called it a suicide, but his arm was slashed like nine times. He had a rubber tube wrapped around his neck and he was beaten with a baseball bat. So it's pretty bad suicide. And I warned him not to go at the time. So. This then leads into, so here I've known about Area 51 most of my life from back when it was the Docktown Strip, from then it was, you know, Groom Lake. Gordon Cooper, actually, I interviewed uh, uh, for the first time where Gordon talked about how he was out at Area 51 and actually saw a uh, uh, some kind of extraterrestrial-looking ship actually land and, uh, you know, had some kind of interaction with it. And, you know, this is Gordon Cooper. This is one of the, this is the fastest man alive, the last American to go into space alone. And uh, we got Gordon to talk about all kinds of stuff because, you know, I'd known him all my life. He was my friend. So 1990, I'm hired to, and this is kind of the progression, 1989, 
I go out with a team of scientists, including Fred Bell, television producer Joe, Joe Randazzo, Paul Shepard, and a group of people, and we ultrasound the Dulce Archuleta Mesa. There was a controversy at the time in the UFO field from a guy by the name of Bill Moore who talked about uh, – because Dulce is really key – to a lot of the things that are sort of going on in the, in the black or black world or black ops movement because it was one of the underground bases or facilities where not only were we actively involved with extraterrestrials, but had actually fought two major wars or conflicts with this particular bunch of ET, excuse me, this particular bunch of ETs at the Mesa. The first one I think was in like 77 and the next one was under the Reagan administration somewhere around, uh, 84, 85. And uh, computer scientist Jim Delatoso came up with a, uh, uh, this is 89, December of 89, mind you, came up with a way to ultrasound the mountain and actually use what, what, were called, what was called data tabling at that time to take slices of sonic information and then put it all together like a loaf of bread to actually see what was in the mountain. So we ultrasound the Mesa in December of 89, and uh, we prove beyond a shadow of doubt that there's a base, that, there is a, that there's a, a huge dome at the top, that it goes down about 10 levels or so, that there's cavernous areas underneath, that there are jet tubes or, or train systems that actually interconnect the base to, you know, God knows where, other places like, you know, Kirtland and New Mexico and, you know, Area 51 and Edwards Air Force Base and Dallas and Nevada. And so we proved that. So on that trip, I then meet Joe Randazzo. And he hires me to co-direct and co-produce a very extensive documentary, which was called uh, UFO Contactees. And he spent about $250,000 on it. Remember, this is 1990 now, mind you. And it was the most comprehensive exploration of not just the UFO phenomenon, but the people that actually been contacted, taken on the ships, had either had friendly contacts, negative contacts were being used as breeders, if you will, you know, women who were being taken on the ship and eggs were being taken and, and hybrid children were being, were actually being created from their genetic material. So we traveled around the world for, gosh, about four months, I think, and put together nearly 600 hours of taped interviews with abductees, contactees, scientists, researchers. Somebody had a dog barked at a UFO. We went out and talked to them. <laughs> and But we went to we went to Switzerland, the Billy Myers farm. We right, went all right. down Italy. We went to Spain. We went to we were in England when the modern crop circle phenomenon, when it was really just circles before it became you know glyphs and puzzles and all kinds of things. But there were giant circles being formed in the fields, like while we were sleeping out in the fields. Wow, so some pretty amazing stuff. And we interviewed a scientist named uh, named uh, Robert Lazar. Ah, and yes. Bob Lazar, this was in, uh, I think, February of 1990, and Bob in May of 89 had defected from Area 51 and claimed to be a part-time scientist there and had been called onto the base to work a couple of days here and there. And he, you know, he'd only worked, I think, about a grand total of, I think, 18 days total, actually, at the facility. And he had been sort of a local celebrity because George Knapp was the one who worked for, who actually won a uh, won an Emmy for uh, uh, UFOs, The Best Evidence is the name of it. Fantastic thing. I think you can pick it up on YouTube or you know DVD. But he'd made Lazar kind of a local celebrity, but nobody had really heard of him outside of the kind of strange world of local Vegas news. So we interview Bob. And uh, at the end of this interview, so, you know, said some amazing things about his interactions with the saucers and how he got the job and, and uh, told us a lot of things where his story kind of changed later on. We had private conversations with him where he'd actually had some really kind of horrifying uh, interactions with what he claimed were extraterrestrial beings actually on the base, on the facility, which he later then recanted, which which we thought was very strange. But uh, uh, Bob said 
look, you don't have to believe me. All you got to do is go out to Highway 375, which has now been which has now been renamed the Extraterrestrial Highway, by the way, thanks to me and other people out there. Um, go stand by this black mailbox on Steve Medlin's ranch at the mile 18 marker on this on this highway, and go out on Wednesday nights and about dusk to about 9:30, you'll see him test the ships. So it took a year for me to get there, and uh, by that time. Uh, I think in uh, November, December of, uh, 89, uh, George, George, uh, uh, Noria Haikawa, uh, uh, Gary Schultz, um, Anthony Hilder, uh, my buddy, uh, uh G. Edward Griffin, uh, you know, they've gone out there. And so I joined the crew in February of 91 when, uh, I had, uh, a friend of mine who worked for the LA Times, Shannon Sands, was a reporter for the Times. So we went out there and me and a, another buddy of mine, Jeff Slack, and she had a, a photographer with her. And, uh, and I'm not going to relate the whole experience, but she was in another car with a photographer and it was a, a stormy night. Let me, let me just and, jump in here, Sean. Yeah, this is a good okay. time to, to, uh, to break. We'll, we'll come back and reset. Sean David Morton here, uh, discussing area 51, the secret space program, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, Neil Armstrong was overheard saying that we were basically warned off the moon that these extraterrestrial civilizations did not want us going to other planets. They really want us to go out into space as a peaceful, unified people, not in a militaristic way. The energy and propulsion systems behind these devices would completely enable us to heal the Earth, Gaia, without which we have no future. The, the question of what kind of future do we have or we're fighting over that barrel of oil coming out of the Middle East, the, the biosphere simply cannot withstand another 50 or 60 years of this kind of secrecy. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? We're back with Sean David Morton, remote viewer, documentary film producer, author, uh, and uh, the man really uh, largely responsible for, for bringing Area 51 into the public uh, consciousness. So uh, there you are out at uh, mile 18 uh, and uh, by the black mailbox, the infamous, infamous black mailbox with an L.A. Well, actually, reporter. we were driving up the road. Ah, we, okay. we actually drove up the road towards the facility. And... Uh, we had a sheriff stop us. You know, the, the Mars Venus lights came out of the came out of the fog, and he said, "You guys got to turn around. There's a military base up there, and they're doing uh, they're doing testing." And you know, we joked with him and said, "Oh, you mean the military base is not on the map?" And he's like, "Yeah, very funny. Just you know, just turn your car around, wise guy, and go back the other way." And uh, Shannon was in the front car with her photographer, and they sped on back down the road. And Jeff and I were driving very slowly, and and uh, literally had a. As dramatic as it sounds, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing because we don't have that much time, but this, a flying saucer basically almost hit our car. It, it came on its edge right in front of us in the middle of the road. We slammed into the side of the road, just sat there, just complete horrified shock. And then it just kind of bounced off into the desert. We got out of the car and we chased after it and, uh, you know, the thing sort of then came at us. It changed directions and it, and it, and it lit up like the sun for a brief period and you know, we got our faces burned by it. We got really sick from being too close to it. And then it went bouncing off into the desert. So we jump in the car and drive back down and, and there's about 30 people at the, at the, at the top of the road where we're jumping up and down saying, look, there's the saucer. And you can see it plain as day now because the clouds had cleared and this thing was just dancing around the valley. And, uh, the funny part was Shannon, who was the reporter, I was like, I can't see it. <laughs> what do you mean you can't see it? She goes, Well, I'm, well, I'm, I'm night blind in one eye, and I'm like legally blind in the other. And I'm like, so we're, and we're all sitting there yelling and screaming. And then the reporter, 
the, the that's incidentally how I would that's strength. incidentally how I would uh, I would describe most members of the mainstream media. <laughs> exactly, but this photographer, this snotty kid, it was the photographer. We said, "Well, take photos of this. There's a UFO. It's you know, it's it's like way off in the distance, but it's bouncing all around, doing crazy things." And he says, "I can't." And we said, "What do you mean you can't? You're a photographer of the LA Times." And he says, "Well, I brought a Hasselblad portrait camera that has a range of 12 feet, and I was told to take pictures of people looking at UFOs, oh, not great. to take pictures of UFOs." And he packed up his car and left. So, you know, so the next day, a front page story, actually about two days later, a front page story appears in the LA Times uh, about Area 51, which basically just has us, you know, looking up in the sky, you know, us sitting in our lawn chairs, you know, us, you know, somebody put up a sign that said, you know, saucer watching spot here and all that. You know, once again, even though they saw it, even though, you know, with their own eyes, you know, they made us look like we were just lunatics who just went out to the side of the road for no particular reason. So I got hooked on this and started going out like every other Wednesday. And then all my friends wanted to come. And then we started reading, you know, like big vans. And I took everybody from, you know, Dean Devlin from Independence Day to, uh, 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 to, uh, Conan O'Brien and the, and the guys that write The Simpsons when Conan O'Brien used to be the head writer on The Simpsons to, uh, uh, I forget her name, but she's a big time director, Betty. She used to be on Hill Street Blues, and then she directed uh, she directed um, uh, Private Parts, Howard Stern's right, Private Parts. Right, I know what you mean. I, yeah, I can't think of her name. And Brady Bunch. Ah, I can't forget her name. Betty. Not Betty White, because she's the old one. Betty. Oh, I forget. Anyway, so but she was a famous actress and director and all that. So uh, over the course of like three years, then, then Sightings gets involved. And I work on sightings for a while, and I, I produce the uh, uh, I produce the segment on Area 51 for the premiere of Sightings. We take Geraldo Rivera out there. We had a short-lived show working for Geraldo called Now It Can Be Told, and uh, working with uh, Craig Craig Rivers, who's his brother, because Geraldo's real name is, is he's a he's a Jewish Puerto Rican. His real name is Jerry Rivers. Uh, so his brother Craig and I became pretty good friends. So this was all you know. The fun part about this was is that in my working for uh, sightings for Geraldo for uh, a show called Hard Copy that I worked for as a freelance producer for a couple of years uh, with Bob Keviat on Unsolved Mysteries, uh, being behind uh, originally the Alien Autopsy, uh, and you know, and Bob Keviat actually kind of you know getting getting that entire story and my setting him up with that to the Alien interview. There's so many things that have come out of uh, come out of Area 51. Now I was told. And the, the biggest thing that we saw out there, which I thought was really interesting, just be, just from the point of view of the manned personnel and a tip of the iceberg of what's really going on, is every usually every Wednesday, like the drive-in, we would go out and we would see discs, and they would fly. And now remember, Area 51 sits at the edge of a a military reservation that takes up virtually the entire middle part of the state of Nevada. It's three times the size of Switzerland. And it stretches from Nellis Air Force Base all the way up the center part of the state so they can, you know, play war games and red flags and, you know, blow stuff up. And yet every Wednesday night on a schedule, they were flying these ships, you know, anywhere between 50 to 2,000 feet off the deck right over our heads. They knew we were out there. And why weren't they testing in the, you know, in the military zone? Well, that, yeah, that begs that obviously the, the obvious question is if, if the, these uh, craft that you saw were, let's say, back engineered alien technology, or even if they were, you know, just built in the good old USA with good old American know-how, why would they, why would they expend that amount of time and resources in trying to keep these things secret inside the base and then fly them out where everyone can look at them? Don't know. And I've asked that exact same question over and over and over again, unless the entire thing was a, was a psyop to, you know, to create this kind of buzz around 5-1 and, you know, just, just create again an impression that the military is somehow in control. 
And, you know, look, I mean, they made, they made the movie Independence Day. Dean Devlin went out there with me. And, you know, we just talked about, you know, so if there was an extraterrestrial invasion, Area 51 would pretty much be our first line of defense. And I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, that's right. And then he wrote the entire movie, Independence Day. Now he was, he was written a letter by the military because they had, they had the full on cooperation of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the military and the Army and the Navy and the whole deal. They were going to use El Toro and all this. And he was written a letter that said, if you mention Area 51 in this movie, we're pulling our support. And he said, well, you can't not have a movie about extraterrestrials and not mention Area 51. Uh, you know, that's like having a monster movie without the aliens in it. And they pulled their support, which is why they had to move the entire production up to Utah and use the salt flats and, like, the Utah National Guard and all that. So they were pretty sensitive about this. Now, when I found the hilltop that looked down on the base, and this was uh, May of ninety of 91, I was pretty stunned because this was a chunk in their armor where I could climb up to the top of this hill and I could see their house from there. And I came back a month later with a, a buddy of mine and we, you know, hid out under a tarp and we filmed the place for the, for the whole night and filmed all kinds of crazy things up there. And that video has been seen on every show about Area 51 you've ever seen. I don't know how they stole it and continue to use it without paying me, but, uh, you know, so, but, but they do. Um, and then everything kind of stopped. We were told by some inside sources that because of the heat that we'd put on the base, that everything had been moved to a place called Area 6413 in, uh, in Utah. And uh, the strangest thing for me, and just to put it, I mean, there's so much stuff we go into about Area 51 because we had dealings with not only Bob Lazar, but a guy named Ghost Walker who, uh, who claimed to be a, an assassin that was then in his spare time, was actually then assigned to Area 51 as a security guard, that he was given the, uh, access to Level 5. Uh, the mysterious Victor who came out with two minutes and 55 seconds of an actual – later became known as the alien interview – uh, where we interviewed him not only on film, but uh, you know we did it on Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell back when he had 26 million listeners worldwide. Um, you know all kinds of stuff we you know came out of the base about the and remember the Area 51 section, the, the Groom Lake section was where the big hangar is. They were working on uh, you know the SR 71, uh, the uh, the F 117A and the YF 22 fighter and you know a lot of exotic equipment there. But you had to take another bus down to another section of the base because everything was divided up. There was you know there was five one. There was the area they called Groom. There was the Dreamland guys. Then you had the S four Papoose guys, which was a whole other hangar where they actually then stored the uh, the nine craft that they had actually gotten through something called Project Pounce. That's where Bob Lazar was, correct? S four. Yeah, he was then taken there, and and he was one of and the only reason he got the job was apparently they tried to crack open an engine while it was running to see how it worked or something, and it exploded and killed five of these scientists. So because he knew Edward Teller, and he called Edward Teller, the inventor of the hydrogen bomb, and said, hey, have you ever heard of a place called Area 51? I'm kind of thinking about getting a job there. And he thought Teller was going to laugh him off. And Teller said, I'll see what I can do, and hung up the phone. And the next day he got a call and went in to go work for EENG, because these are all private contractors up there. This EENG was TRW, Northrop Boeing. So they had to get permission. In order for them to fly the exotic stuff, they would tell, they would ask Nellis, could you please turn your radar off on Wednesday nights? And Nellis said, screw you, we're not doing any such thing. So there was, there was a real conflict between whoever was there and the actual military. So anybody who thinks that, you know, the U.S. government military is all responsible for this is just, you know, is wrong. There's, no, there's, a, in there's a lot of conflict between what was going on there. And the yeah. biggest thing we I was Sorry. just going to say, in talking to, to guys like Richard Dolan, I have the I, I got the impression that somewhere, you know, in the years following Roswell, basically Truman uh, turned this this whole operation o- over to private hands and basically washed his hands of it. Well, you, that's the that's the magic, majestic twelve stuff, and it's it's just 
it goes beyond that. And, and because you, you have to understand, and we'll get into this, I don't know how much time we have, but we can get into the, you know, the whole general purpose of this. The, the rest of Area 51 was that, uh, we went out and slept in the dirt for like six months and didn't see a thing. And, uh, that's when the idiots showed up. That's when, you know, guys like, you know, Glenn Campbell and all these other, and all these other guys. And of course, once I found the base and I told John Lear about it, then everybody else, like Jim Goodman and everybody else goes up and climbs the top of that mountain. So, you know, I, <laughs> I don't care. I never get any credit, uh, you know, for being chased by these people, for, you know, for having them, you know, shoot at me from helicopters and, you know, put machine gun bullets on a camera that I had there. And, you know, cause I was like the Lone Ranger basically doing all the stuff by myself. Which was really dumb, and and they could have done anything to me and dragged me across the line, I suppose. But uh, um, so the bottom line of this whole thing is, that eventually the saucer stuff stopped. The biggest thing that we saw was a friend of mine named John Hadley, another guy who died a mysterious death. Uh, was we saw a gigantic shuttle that was about sixteen hundred feet from tip to tail. I mean, this thing was like it had a huge blunt shovel nose on it. Uh, it looked like uh, two door stops, a big wedge. Uh, cut in half, black on the bottom, white on the top. And this thing, uh, flew right over our heads at about three o'clock in the morning. And it was coming in from space and it was creating these gigantic shock waves as it came in from space. It was, it was, it created what in Los Angeles in the news they called skyquakes. And it was all over the news. I mean, Paul Moyers was on the news going, well, whatever this thing was, came in from space and traveled in Mach 25 and landed at the mysterious Area 51, but the military denies any knowledge of it. And, you know, this is on the news for the times he's happened because I'm in Hermosa Beach. And, I mean, it shook my house as this thing came over in a reverse earthquake where the ceiling started going first and then the bottom of the house. My word. And we saw this thing, and and we were we learned later from uh, from a contact that this thing was being brought in from space because there was something wrong with it that it was not calibrated correctly, and so they had to make the unusual thing of landing it several times at five one. But this thing came, this thing like it was like it was like Darth Vader's you know Avenger ship. It, it came right over our heads. Only time the Wackenhut guys ever chased us. Only time that we were really. I mean, just terrified for our lives. The camo dudes. The camo dudes. The camo dudes, yeah. The Wackenhut guys, which who usually when you try to talk to them, they would just run away. But this time, uh, you know, John Hadley, we got the, we, we, and the footage we got was terrible. It was looked like the inside of somebody's stomach, but these guys chased us and we, we, we were doing 120 miles an hour in a truck with our lights off with, uh, with John Hadley with this bug-like, you know, night vision goggle thing driving in the pitch dark to make it to the little alien and Rachel. Uh, you know, where we jumped out of the truck, you know, threw a tarp over it, ran into, uh, you know, one of the, uh, uh, the little trailers out there. And, uh, and then they surrounded the place and then they just went up to the door and just tried the handle. It was locked and went, eh. and then they all went away, which is a big anticlimactic thing to it. But, uh, you know, we were scared to death. So, I'll take uh, anticlimactic every time. Listen, yeah. uh, uh, Sean, hold on. We'll take another time out. Come back. Sean David Morton, Area 51 and the Secret Space Program right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Ramey says that so far as can be determined, no one saw the object in the air, and he describes it as being made of some sort of tinfoil. Other Army officials say that further information indicates that the object had a diameter of about 20 to 25 feet, and that nothing in the apparent construction indicated any capacity for speed, and that there was no evidence of a power plant. But this also appeared too flimsy to carry a man. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
We're getting a um, uh, inside tour, Area 51, with Sean David Morton, remote viewer, author, documentary film producer, and uh, the man largely credited with bringing Area 51 into the public consciousness back in the early 90s. Uh, now, do you have, to what extent, I mean, is there any way to, to get a handle on, you know, which of these crafts were back engineered, which of them were actual alien craft, which of them were just engineered by good old American know-how? Well, the stuff we've got now, you can actually. There's a couple of pretty good examples of it. Uh, there was a, uh, you know, now with YouTube and all the video stuff. I mean, go on YouTube, and the most advanced thing that I know that we're flying now is is something called the TR3B Astra. And uh, take a look at it. You can go on YouTube. There's a bunch of footage. There was some footage that was actually taken in France, uh, on, on, a, on a hillside just outside uh, just outside Paris. Uh, of the, uh, of, of, of the TR3B Astra. It's, it's amazing. It's really cool because if you know the technology that they're using, it combines everything. It's, uh, the, you know, the ship is a, is a huge black triangle. Uh, it's floating on the gravity field of the Earth. It's being pushed forward by, for all intents and purposes, what looks like an impulse drive, if you will. But in the center of the Astra, there's a, a, a big glowing circle that's like a quantum field. Then what you see is the Astra then powers up where this, where this bubble uh, actually appears, uh, you know, all, through the ship, then the top and the bottom of the ship, this bubble goes bloop, and then it, it, it calms down, and then the bubble then encompasses the entire craft and uh, teleports it, basically grabs onto another point in space, bends space, uh, turns the gravity amplifiers off, and then, uh, and then space sort of snaps back to its original size and shape. But you can go all the way back, I mean, really, if you want to look at this, uh, T. Townsend Brown, was a scientist, you know, and the, and the guys that were the, you know, the real brain trust, you know, Manhattan Project were the, you know, kindergartner kids, you know, working on atomic bombs. The real guys were guys like, uh, uh, you know, John Van Neumann and Vannevar Bush, you know, the guys that founded companies like Raytheon and, and he was the, uh, national science director for the federal government. You had Nikolai Tesla. So it's an interesting thing, but they all worked on something called the Philadelphia experiment, experiment that was also called Project Rainbow. And R- Rainbow was, all about not just radar invisibility, but what later became teleportation. And then they began to realize that the aspect of when you're teleporting uh, or traveling superluminally, if you will, you travel through another dimension. You travel into a, I guess for all intents and purposes, a fifth dimension or an astral plane uh, in order to go to where you're going. So a, a majority of the saucer stuff was not about propulsion systems, but in essence, and this is what my book Sands of Time is all about, uh, is very much about the discovery and mastery of travel through time. So it's not about uh, time travel or, or, or achieving these amazing uh, 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 speeds. It's not about moving the craft through space. It's about moving the space around the craft. Uh, there is that, but if you actually look at it, for example, Bob Lazar explained in his science experiment that what you're working with, the ships that they were working with at 5-1 had three gravity amplifiers at the bottom. They were like, uh, they look like lamps, and then you have, uh, uh, you have hemispheres that are on, on the bottom of those. It was powered by a, uh, an antimatter drive that, in essence, you have uh, – this is what Lazar was saying. They developed something called – and when Lazar did this back in 91 or 92, uh, all this cutting-edge science, because now we're 20-plus years later, every every single thing that he said 
turned out to be real. Everything, everything he said about the elements that, uh, the elements are immensely unstable in the one third, in the 113 range, you know, up to, up to about 113, 112, 113. Suddenly 114, 115, they mysteriously stabilize. And then element 116 becomes, for all intents and purposes, antimatter. And so what they were doing is they were, they were taking a, a very rare metal that many people believe they could only get from certain extraterrestrial races, plugging in an extra proton, turning it into element 116, uh, hitting a target gas, and then getting an almost uh, 96% nullification. A cobalt bomb is 4% nullification, and it creates that kind of explosion. So this was the immense power that they were getting. When the ships were in what he called Omicron mode, they would simply float on the magnetic field of the Earth. That's why when you see these ships, they they bounce. It's almost like if you're looking at a boat and the, if the ocean's invisible, it would look as though the boat was you know rocking up and down or doing all kinds of crazy things if you couldn't see the water. And then in what they called Delta mode, they would turn on all three gravity amplifiers and literally reach through fifth dimensional space, grab the point that they want to be at, bend space, and then the ship itself would simply then move into that space, turn off the gravity amplifiers, and then time and space would then snap back to its original size and shape. So what you were doing is that you were literally chasing a black hole. You were sort of creating a black hole in front of the ship and then and then kind of and kind of rolling downhill, uh, you know, into this black hole. And of course. You create your own gravity field, so there's no feeling of, of motion uh, in the craft. I mean, another another thing is is that uh, these things are making uh, 90 degree turns at 40,000 miles an hour. Any pilot inside of them, under natural gravity, would be you know squished like a bug against the against the sidewalls. Another weird thing is too is that why do UFOs, even though they're zipping from place to place, they do they don't make sonic booms. That's another weird thing. Why aren't they going boom 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 every time they move? So because they, they have a bubble of air that they take along with them. Sean, you are on a roll. Uh, I hate to stop you, but we've got to take care of some business. On the other side, we'll get back into this. I want to find out how this information, this inside information about Area 51 and the secret space program came to you. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and my conversation with Sean David Morton. Stay with us. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Sean David Morton stays with us for a few moments yet here on The Conspiracy Show. And, uh, Sean, I, I, I want to find out from you how this information got to you, all this inside information about Area 51 and the secret space program. Um, did you uncover declassified documents through FOIA? Did, did somebody, some whistleblower, come to you and, and um, you know, decide that maybe on his deathbed he had to, to get this off his chest? How? In my book, Sands of Time, uh, one of the people when I was fooling around with Area 51 who, who apparently was friends with my dad, uh, who knew of me, who knew my father, who knew, uh, you know, who'd worked it. And this was a guy that had become, I later learned, had become the top guy in a lot of these shadow government operations. And for many years, I was getting phone calls from people that just said, you know, hey, I want to help you out here and why don't you take a look at this. And, uh, about two years ago, well, actually in 2010, so three years ago now, um, I got a call from these really mysterious lawyers up in Westwood. 
and I show up, and they make me sign all these papers, these non-circ, non-discloses, which are which are pretty standard in Hollywood anyway when you're pitching a film project. And they handed me these journals, and they said this is they said these are the uh, the diaries of your friend, the journals of your friend, and you can do anything you want with these. You can publish them, you can turn them into a book or novelize them or whatever. You just can't use his real name to protect his uh, certain active personnel and his wife and his daughter who are still alive. And I later then find out as I start going through these notes and I came up with the – just because I'm all about trying to get information out and entertaining people at the same time, uh, I novelized – I took all this nonfiction and I novelized the nonfiction uh, into my book, Sands of Time, which now has a – it's got a five-star rating on Amazon. I think we sold about 10,000 copies of the book in uh, in hardback. Uh, it's become this gigantic cult hit. It's just – it's just because it starts if – you, if you're interested in the UFO phenomena – and you want to start at the beginning. If you want to start at Project Rainbow and the Philadelphia Experiment and then how this develops, this is the story of Dr. Ted Humphrey, who at 17 years old, his father, who you discover is working on time travel, disappears, vanishes. He goes to USC. He goes to Caltech. Uh, he gets absorbed into these top secret programs. He is at the Montauk Project when they're when they're working on teleporting probes into the heart of Russian nuclear blasts so that they can actually study the center of the nuclear blast so they can understand how time dilation works in the middle of an explosion because time actually does flux when you explode things, especially atomic bombs. And so he was working at Montauk, and then he graduates from Montauk to then go on to – he later becomes the number one guy in the secret government throughout like 40 years of, of his life. And you get a little bit more sympathy for what these guys are doing. It's not so much that uh, – you know, and this gets to, the, this gets to the, the overall point to it, what they are doing, according to him. In the process of this, as you go through these 40 years of the shadow government, uh, his argument was – that there is cooperation between the United States and the Russians and the Chinese on a very high level, and that they've been building a, using all this technology to not only build a, to figure out how to travel through time and alter certain events in time, but uh, a, a massive planetary defense system that stretches out into the solar system, if you will, because according to him, uh, something very big and very bad and very nasty is on its way here. Uh, a, a particularly nasty Alfred Conian race uh, it seemed kind of hell-bent for leather to actually you know, arrive here. And uh, interstellar travel is much more difficult than people expect. You have to be between solar systems in order to use it. You then have to travel at you know, lower than light speeds in between the solar systems. You have to refuel. So supposedly... This force is going to get here um, sometime between like 2020 and 2025. Sean, let me uh, just jump in here if I could. Sean sure. David Morton uh, with this author, documentary um, filmmaker, remote viewer, the author of The Sands of Time, 40 Years in the Shadow Government, based on an incredible true story, uh, a number of other books, including uh, Hitchhiker's uh, Guide to Astral Travel. Now, uh, Sean, let me just pick up on a few points. Okay. Um, this technology that they've been back engineered at, I mean, are we able to trace that back? Was it... Uh, retrieved at the crash at Roswell uh, was even 50, Area 51 operational then, uh, or was it... No, take- because everything went to... Originally, everything went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, or what they called Hangar 18 in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then, you know, 5-1, they only moved the... Uh, the, uh, the uh, late 50s, early 60s, and this is what you're hearing. There's some LA Times reporter that was talking about this. Oh, I've talked to the old-timers at 51. You know, they developed the SR-71 Blackbird. You know, SR stands for Surveillance and Reconnaissance. Uh, I mean, the SR-71 Blackbird was doing Mach 3 to Mach 5 in in 1964. 
So, and then they retire the Blackbird in 74 when everybody finds out about it. Uh, and then they, uh, well, I'm sorry, every found, everybody found out about it in 74, and then they retired the whole program in 78, never to announce what replaced it. So there's all kinds of exotic aircraft that are being made up. I mean, you've got ramjets, scramjets, plutonium pulse drives. Uh, we saw this, uh, this weird contrail that we called, uh, you know, we called donuts on a rope. Uh, because it had these little, it, it was like a contrail, but it had these big puffy clouds that looked like donuts along it. That was supposedly a, a, a pulse drive. Uh, there's what they call the pumpkin seed, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And the TR-3B Astro, which is a fantastic combination of a lot of various hybrid technologies. The, the ships were only moved into uh, the nine craft that they got through Project Pounce, which, which apparently Ted Humphrey was the one that wanted them all located at 5-1. Uh, they only got about 86, uh, 85, 86, because here's where all the weird stuff started happening at 5-1. 5-1 was just a, you know, regular run-of-the-mill, skunk works, uh, you know, Northrop Grumman, uh, you know, making, making B-2 bombers kind of thing. And 85, 86, they then apply to Nevada to extend their borders, because you used to be able to just walk over these low hills. You could just... John Lear has photos from the late 70s where you can just walk over this low hill and stand at a chain, not even a chain link fence. They had posts with like a, with, with a, a single chain in between the posts and you could photograph the base. Uh, then they wanted their border expanded because they didn't want people doing that. So they applied to Nevada and Nevada said, you're already out in the middle of nowhere. What else, what do you want more land for? You've already got the whole middle part of the state. And then they got really stinky about it. In 86, they just took the land. They took like a hundred, they took about, uh, 89,000 acres of land. And, um, and it pissed off Nevada. And, you know, Nevada said, what, and Harry Reid, who was a congressman, said, what gives you the right to just confiscate the, the land of a sovereign state? And they said, well, we, we answer to a much higher authority than you, sir. And he's like, you want to tell me who's higher than the U.S. Senate or the United States Congress? And they said, well, yeah, I tell you what, you, you come behind closed doors with us. You take a little tour of 5-1. We'll feed you some pine-scented Kool-Aid, and, uh, and you'll see. And after that, every single person that's done that, from Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton signed a bunch of executive orders that said that Area 51 is above the Constitution and, and the laws of the United States cannot be implied there, you know, to Harry Reid who said, oh, that's just fine. So they took this extra land. Now, when I found the hilltop, that looked down on the facility. They, they spent like billions of dollars trying to figure this one out because they couldn't expand their border more than 5,000 acres without permission from the state. So what they did is they snaked out a tentacle that just is about six inches wide that goes to the top of the hill and just takes just the top of the hill. So they've got a big fence and a bunch of wires and all that so you can't get to the top of the hill anymore. Um, so that's so that was when the, the weird stuff happened. And also this is when they built the... Uh, the S-4 facility that's kind of a dune-colored, uh, camouflaged hangar that's built into the side of the mountain. That goes down five levels. You actually had nine ships, some of which worked. There was another one that had a big hole in it. Uh, you know, they, they were testing a laser, apparently, and burned a hole through this thing. And the floors would then drop down, and they could then slide them into... Uh, 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 hangar bays that were lit 360 degrees and then had these, these what they called the monkey bars would actually come out from the sides so that the technicians could have you know 360 degree access to the saucer then you went down to third level which was like scientists and lunchroom and whatever fourth level was security personnel and there was a fifth level which got pretty scary because they called it the zoo in one part which were a number of bodies in a blue liquid in these large glass tubes 
uh, with these uh, uh, metallic metal stripes at sort of the breast and the groin. Now, where does that information come from? Is that from Lazar or Victor? No, that was from a guy that was well. Uh, that was that was from a guy that worked as a security guard there. I mean, okay. this was from Ghostwalker, and the advantage of this was is that in uh, from May until about December of '90, when I told when I took John Lear for his birthday, actually up to the top of the mountain, I'm the only one that knew what the base looked like. So when Ghostwalker came along, this guy Connor, uh, he shows up at my house after going through a number of different UFO investigators and having some very strange things happen. And I was terrified. I slept with, I mean, a loaded 38 under my pillow for a week while this guy was here. Uh, dude was 6'4", had gold eyes, had a, had a scar like you know, on the right side of his face. I, I, I watched him jump from a standing start. Uh, about eight feet in the air up to, up to one of the lifeguard stands out on the beach. I, I, this dude was just creepy. And he talked about how he'd done like 60 kills for the government and now he wanted out, that he was going to give me this pile of paper, uh, you know, for me to go with. And this is when I was working for Geraldo. This was, you know, when now it can be told and Bob Keviet was working there. We went out to Vegas, you know, we had this big adventure, went all these different ways and the guy just disappeared. Guy just said, well, I'll see you at three o'clock. And I was there with armed security guards with tickets in hand to fly him to the East Coast for Geraldo to interview him, and he, he vanished. I, I, I never saw him again. So, But he drew a map of what the base looked like. He knew it. He'd been there, and he said, I, when I wasn't being an assassin, the, 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 prime, uh, uh, the prime assignment was 5-1. He says, because underground, they've got bowling alleys, they've got you know baseball fields, the food is five-star, they've got like lobster and crab every day. He said it puts the best, the best hotels in Vegas to shame, and everybody wanted that assignment because the food was so great. And, um, and he was the one that actually had the guard duty on level five, where one half of it was the zoo, but the other half was what they called the ambassadorial suites, and they actually had living extraterrestrials. Uh, at one end of this. Now, years later, when the mysterious Victor stuff came out, you see, all this stuff kind of confirms itself. Everything, you know, all the stuff that I learned, I, there's another story that, that backs it up, and, and there's all these different sources that don't know about each other uh, that then confirm the other thing. So when the, uh, when the mysterious Victor and the alien interview came out, this was all level five, and this alien that they'd had, he'd smuggled out this two minutes and 55 seconds of film, uh, was living in this in this ambassadorial suite. Now they they had to control the atmosphere. Uh, it ate a special diet because it was sort of a it was like a spirulina. It was almost like a uh, it was like whale food. It was a certain type of, type of algae. And eventually the creature died because it had no defenses to the microscopic spores in the air, which they couldn't figure. They couldn't they couldn't filter out well enough. And the thing uh, and these beings only have a. Uh, they're actually very simple biologically. They've got a, a they've got a single lung heart kind of pulmonary mechanism that uh, that once it gets infected, there is you know there's really nothing they can do for it. But my question was to Victor uh, was I mean was it a captured prisoner? And Victor was like I don't know uh, you know do, did Jesus allow the Romans to crucify him? Couldn't he have called down a host of angels at any right. time? Good Could analogy. Yeah. It? So it became more of a and he says were we communicating with it? And he says, well, I don't know. We have these intuitive communicators that they call intcoms, and we don't know if the guys are lying or not. How, how are we supposed to know? You know, it's, if you pat your dog on the head and say, good boy, or you're communicating with your dog. Because it's literally like, 
you know, like showing your dog a card trick or trying to teach him, you know, trigonometry. So that was right. the level that these things were on. Listen, Sean, I gotta, I gotta just about wrap this up here. But, oh, okay. Uh, All right, sorry. No, no worries. Listen, we, we'll have, have you back and, uh, do a part two and a part three, whatever it takes. Just to remind, uh, listeners, The Sands of Time, uh, is the book, 40 Years Inside the Shadow Government, based on an incredible true story. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. It's, uh, you can get the, uh, the hardcover and we have it in dynamic voice audio as well. So we, you can get the, get the sound version of the book, you get the hardcover of the book, you get the PDF of the book. Uh, Sense of Time, greatest book you'll ever read. And uh, it's it's uh, all a true story about all this stuff. And it explains, once again, if, if you've never been into this ever before and you want everything from soup to nuts from beginning to end, Sands of Time is the best place to go. Sean, a real pleasure. Um, Thank you, I'm Richard. I'm thrilled that you join me. And let's do it again. Okay. Sean David Morton, The Sands of Time. And I warned you, he likes to talk. And I was more than uh, willing to just sit back and listen. Sean David Morton is a fascinating guy. I will have him back. And again, that book is called The Sands of Time, 40 Years Inside the Shadow Government. Hey, check out the website, richardserrett.com. Richard Serrett, all one word, S-Y-R-E-T-T. That's your portal to the conspiracy show. All the information need, you need on upcoming programs. There's a book club. There's a secret document uh, a page. There's a page dedicated to some of our regular contributors. And also, I post some interesting, uh, some interesting stories in the news on the right-hand side. So check those out as well. And while you're at it, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett.